When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, Episode 42, Kinship in Wales. In history, your family was everything. Your relationships with multiple extended family likely was the origin for tribes, eventually expanding into communities and, in some cases, countries. Kinship is the bonds we form, be it through common lineage and sometimes common experience. In anthropology, defining kinship is difficult, and it creates as many questions as answers. Yet, it makes sense that those you are brought up with are as important to you as how you define yourself in the world. Even a crappy parent or relative can have an effect on a child, even if it's all it is, is negative. In early medieval Wales, kinship was a part of the boundaries that separated each other from their Saxon and Angle neighbors. It was the key component in the function of Welsh society and could be blamed for the problems within the system going into the post-Norman conquest period. Now, I'm going to be honest with you and say I was terrible at anthropology during my time at university. I took the course twice. I never really did better than just basically passing. And some of the concepts and some of what people got hung up on confused and, to be perfectly frank, irritated me at times. I have no idea why, but I always struggled trying to get fascinated by the arguments of culture and kinship Yet, studying this week, I found this issue very interesting, and the Welsh particularly, a fascinating study in how kinship works. Because it doesn't work the way you would think it would, at least not in this period. Often when we look at these things, we often think of it in the English form of kinship. And the Welsh were much more modern in their standpoint, and in a way, that was to their detriment. So why was it so fascinating? Well, understanding the way Welsh kinship rules worked helps us understand inheritance and how that influenced Welsh kingdoms right up until the last prince was killed. Also, these rules defined how societies had worked and may have existed long before the advent of the Romans, let alone the Normans. We don't really know when these rules began. In fact, one could argue that they may have pre-existed even what we would call history particularly in Wales. Now, think about how family rules work. Currently, your immediate family is paramount. In some places, especially smaller communities, you might live near your cousins, your aunts, your uncles, and grandparents at times, but that is definitely not the norm these days. In fact, most people now grow up in small family units and then break apart into other small family units and in times don't even live in the same city, community, rural area as their previous generation. And they may move several times, and over that period of time, obviously we still maintain some level of contact with these relatives and family and friends. We may attend weddings, we may go to funerals, we may be involved in births, and all sorts of other things, but realistically it is nothing like what it used to be. 
In more ancient times, your family unit was critical to you, both your immediate family and your extended family. They helped you survive the cold winters, the harsh summers, the flooding. They worked with you and together to try and make sure that your family unit grew and contributed, and in some cases provided the alliances you needed in order to defend yourself from others. So there were key components to our lifestyle. It's something that in modern times we've kind of grown out of after a fact, but that doesn't make them any less important to us. It just means that their importance on a cultural level is quite a bit different than it used to be. And as families got smaller, there was also less of a tendency to spend time with extended relations. In the medieval period, this is almost the opposite of what happens. Families are large. Extended families are key to your upbringing, as I said. You, in fact, may spend as much time with your second and third cousins as you do even with your immediate family. Small communities were founded on these connections, and as they grow, it takes in larger and larger territory until family trees cover vast spaces and local hamlets become villages, become towns, become, well, to put it bluntly, countries. In this period, you create alliances and build families by using marriage, less as a love contract and more of a linkage to others. As you build family units with others, it allows you to expand your power base and control. This becomes a key part of society and likely exists for that reason, and possibly have existed from time immemorial. We don't know exactly at what point this, this idea about alliance via marriage began. It, it exists so long back in our, in our human existence that we can't honestly point to it. And yes, the understanding of what a family and a marriage is differs from, from era to era. But the reality of it is, by this time period, with the Christian ideals about what family is a, a uniting between a man and a woman in order to have children and to, in a way, rebuild society, becomes an important part of how these communities grew. And so, as a family unit, they were a key portion to creating connections and expanding your family base. And if you think about it, if you marry off your son or daughter to the local community just beside you, or to a person who you are having problems with, to create a unity and a bond, it is a way to stop some of the fighting, create a larger reach, and of course both families would then benefit. Now, can we argue that the couple may not benefit? Well, yeah, obviously. But the reality of it is, and we'll get more into this in a bit, the family was predominant and more important than the individual. Thus, your role as individual was subsumed by some of the family relationships you had, and your name... In other words, your last name was more critical to you than your first name in that case. Of course, in the Welsh history, patronymics, or your father's names, were part of the larger ideal and the larger understanding. In fact, you wouldn't talk about yourself as being your first name only, but you would be your first name, son of, or daughter of, depending on your situation, this man who is a son of this man who is a son of this man who is a son of this man, who is a son of this man, who is a son of... and go back as far as you predominantly can. And in fact, it creates a larger linkage the farther back you can go. So, of course, it's critically important to you. If you think about it, if, if for you as an individual to prove your relationship with others, you can go, as I could in my case, I can say, 
I am Jonathan, the son of Vernon, the son of Stanley, the son of Owen, the son of Owen, son of William. Now, everybody who's descended from William is now a relative and a linked person to me. So for me, that is a key component of defining who I am. And that's part of the reason why patronymics and, and this idea of being the son of the son of the son of the son of the son is so critical in the Welsh kinships and the Welsh family building. And initially, if we look at the first level of kinship, the co-heir, your descendancy from four generations is critically important in that. Now, what is a co-heir? A co-heir is someone who equally inherits something, uh, be it land, be it titles, be it uh, money and property. All of this comes back to the fact that you are a co-heir. So, in other words, your father's children all, if they're male, to be fair, equally inherit. And they equally take a part of what the father is given. Optionally, say your brother died, his children would then be the co-heir, or his grandchildren could be co-heir with you. Thus, it even stretches what you're sharing out much farther. Now, in a common modern practice, this isn't unacceptable. In fact, it's very common for this to happen. But at this time period in the Middle Ages, especially in France and in England and even in Scotland to some extent, the idea that you would have a co-equal sharing your inheritance is very unusual. Primogenitor, the idea that the firstborn inherits everything, and specifically the firstborn son, was a key to how monarchy was formed, especially after Alfred and his descendants to the English throne, and in fact becomes the chief point of contention between uh, Harold and William, which leads to the intervention of the Normans into England. So primogenitor in England was huge and very important. It was the key of creating stronger and stronger uh, monarchies and, point of fact, in uniting the English monarchy because it creates a single person in charge. You don't have this same concept in the Welsh uh, version of this. You have equal sharing. And thus, there's always been talk about the concepts within Welsh history that kingdoms would actually form and break up because of inheritance, because inheritance would then share that kingdom out equally. Until, of course, one of the brothers decided, well, I don't like the fact that brother so-and-so got more of this land than I did, and they would go to war and eventually create this new country that would come out of it. This is both the strength and the weakness, correct? When you have a united family, that's a strength. When you have a divided family, it becomes an incredible weakness. And in this case, that's what it is. It, it, it creates a problem for the Welsh in some ways, because now, instead of there being a single king in charge, you now have multiple kings. And so instead of it becoming more and more unified, it becomes more and more widened. And it allows other people to influence things. In fact, even if we look at Llewellyn the Last, his problems with his brother David was key to how Edward I manipulated what ended up happening in Wales at the time. And even though he wipes out both of these gentlemen, he created the problem between them, especially between him and his father, Henry II, in trying to create 
a sense that these men couldn't work together, and he would prop up whichever one sort of served to his advantage. So this, the idea of co-heir is a great one in, in, in modern parlance and in past, if you think about it, but when it actually becomes practical, it does make things a lot more difficult. So to get back to what we were talking about, in when small communities are founded through these connections, as they grow, they take on larger and larger territory. And then, of course, they become, instead of small farms, they become, or small communities, they become small hamlets, then become villages. And they grow and they grow. And so these alliances become hugely important and critical to them. So that's the reason why marriage becomes all about it being an alliance. And likely marriage and the ideas of fidelity are key to these alliances. So women, especially, are to be pure and to be the key in the chain to building the family. They are not the important one. The family is. And so it is an unfair and unequal link, to be sure. But it will be a time-honored tactic for 1,400 years or so of recorded history in Western society and continues on even to this day in other societies. And yes, it's not fair to those women. And to be fair, not necessarily fair to the men who are married to them. Because your desire for love is subsumed by the interests of the family. And we know this to be a common problem which happens later on in all sorts of societies. But it is one that you can see in the Welsh society, even going back to the early Middle Ages, where a woman's place is as a piece of property rather than as a co-equal. And whereas before they may have been fellow soldiers, they may have been uh, queens and, and leaders of society, Thanks to the Romans, thanks to Christianity, and I don't mean this to be critical of them, but rather their cultural ideas create a situation where the woman is seen as not being equal, not being the same, and against what previously had gone before becomes a part of, of the family unit, which is now your most important item and your most important link your kinship and its role is way more important at this point than an individual. Again, I keep hammering away at that, but that's, that's one of the big takeaways here. And this will continue throughout this society because of this type of thing. So what is unique to Wales and why do we make a point of discussing kinship in order to better understand why Welsh kings were both unified and separate thanks to these rules? Welsh kinship is based on a double system. One is a four-generation inheritance, uh, and then the other is around linkages that you have with your extended family. We mentioned sort of where the four generations come in as co-inheritors, and how you would inherit things based not on the fact that you were the firstborn son, but rather that you were a co-equal with others who would then inherit with you. Um, and the Welsh did not practice primogenitor. They largely didn't have this firstborn son issue, uh, which, like I said, was probably both good and bad. And all sons of the family unit were considered to be co-heirs. And like I said, even down farther in the generational tree. This also meant the family units were both likely stronger and weaker in Wales, stronger when the family was unified, but again, infinitely weaker when there was divisions amongst the sons of the deceased or the grandsons or the great-grandsons. The second phase of kinship was called the Kenedal, 
and I hope I'm spell sounding that, saying that correctly, uh, this lineage was deeper than the four generations. It created a much larger family, which included sometimes six or more generations of family interrelated. And at the head of it was the Penkanadil, uh, or chief of the kin or chief of the kindred. This male was effectively the head of the family and represented the presiding authority who determined negotiations with other families handled disputes, and finally determined who was or was not a member of the family. The Canadal is not simply your cousins, it's your second cousins, your third cousins, your fourth cousins. Anybody almost who is related to you in any way is a part of the Canadal. And this Canadal becomes the unit that obviously would make sense as a governing unit. Now this is where there's some exclusivity, and like I said, while it does sound similar, there are some differences with other communities and other cultures. The Penkanetal was considered high in status, and they were the key to how the family functioned. These Penkanetal were the key people, key authority figures, and their authority was considered to be paramount. Their decisions actually overrided the family decisions, and in one case, there's a discussion about the fact that the Penkanetal if you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. It does actually decide whether or not someone born out of wedlock is considered to be a member of the family or not. Because, of course... Obviously, in this idea of Welsh inheritance and Welsh uh, descendancy and how critical it was, the idea that you would not be a legitimate heir 
would be a huge disservice or a huge problem for you. You end up suddenly isolated. And in Welsh society, that appears to be a hugely important problem and would create a level of issues for you, which you wouldn't be able to easily overcome. And you can imagine in the Middle Ages, there were likely a lot of children who didn't have what would normally be conceived as being authoritative lineage, born out of wedlock, born to people who were having sex before marriage, who were uh, not keeping within the fidelity of the home. And I think if you look at Gildas, this might explain why he railed away so often on this. Because one of his big criticisms of the kings of the time period was that they were had a lot of infidelity. And this infidelity created illegitimate children. And if illegitimate children are, in effect, in the worst position in society because they have no family, then that's hugely detrimental to their upbringing. It's hugely detrimental to where they could get to. Whereas in some cases, if you look at, and for those of you who aren't used to this terminology, the term bastard in British, in English society, let me clarify, um, that was a whole different situation. You could still become a legitimate heir, even as a illegitimate child. You don't have that option in Welsh, at least if you look at it from a straight up standpoint of the legalistic ideas that existed in Wales. So you can see why they would rail away. I mean, outside of the religious reasons, which Gildas would definitely have lots of those, you can see why he would rail away from the idea of the family unit and the betrayal that this could be perceived as being. And so his calling them out for this kind of makes sense in context. Whereas in previous levels of co-heir was seen as sharing, as a land-sharing situation. In other words, he would inherit your father's land equally or your father's property equally. The idea of the Knedel was di very different and likely had more in common with kings and high kings and nobility in Welsh society. This concept of the Knedel is amazingly interesting because it now allows them to negotiate not on a level of being, you know, I mean, you can imagine like a commoner family where you have a Knedel would be, on normal terms, would still be perceived as a commoner's family. But when there was disputes amongst the family, and even with kings, they would negotiate. They would be the key to negotiating how the king would treat the family. So they were considered to be important even amongst the nobility, amongst the kings themselves, and in some cases could be perceived as sitting on the same level. And we see this in some of the hagography and in some of the stories that are told about this concept that of equality. And it's an interesting concept. It's one that, that I personally have not seen outside of Welsh society, this concept that the head of a family could negotiate on equal par with someone who is in higher status normally than them. Uh, the other interesting side effect to all of this, of course, is the final point of kinship was then called fosterage. Now, these foster children or foster parents who were extended the alliance of kinship but not through blood were very different in Wales than they were in, say, England, Scotland, and Ireland, where these relationships were important enough to be enshrined in both religion and law. Your godparent in England had a very 
big role in your life and were very important to you as an individual and important to society. And so they were enshrined in the legalistic terminologies and discussions that were held at the time. In Wales, however, this wasn't the case. You didn't have a legal platform as a foster person. And while it became far more important later on and much more entwined in the legal framework, in the early period, your family meant more to your place in the world than your friends, at least from the standpoint of a legal terminology. However, the fact is it changes later in the Middle Ages, and this is pointed out as we look at some of the legislation and changes that happened. And because of this, one could argue that this is more of a, of a fact of the feudal system where your honors and your duties now extend to kings and to lords rather than necessarily just your family. And so that's a common situation which would happen in the feudal system. So it would make sense that that would change away from the kinship system that was previously enforced. However, even if this nature is informal in the period we're talking about in the 5th, 6th, and 7th centuries, they're still key component. And they're still talked about in Welsh stories, in Welsh documents, and in Welsh lineage charts. And they're talked about in a way that, ha even as they're informal, still have a real role to play. And some scholars have suggested that, that this may have even gone so far as to going into teachers and students. Your teacher became your foster parent. They looked after you. They watched over you. And you were their foster child after a fact. Uh, some scholars suggest that maybe this was a very ancient idea that may have even began as early as Druidic times. And so your whole understanding of kinship and linkages are, again, in the Welsh concepts are different, unique in some ways, not so unique in others. But it's interesting to see how the idea of a, of a level of authority offers a parental position and this concept that rather than just being associates, family units were critical and important. I mean, once you're talking third and, and even fourth cousins, really, you're almost talking people we would not even consider to be related to us, but just maybe having the same last name. Well, now these people are going to talk about the fact that they're linked going back decades of generations and even up to a hundred years of generations now all of a sudden are a key component and it makes perfect sense why the welsh honored and looked at that patronymic style as being so important to them and why surnames when they're brought in with the english are ridiculed and and not treated as being equal or get mistreated after a fashion in the way that the patronymics aren't because at the end of the day kinship is critical and has been key in the welsh psyche for so many years and probably back to ages where history was not kept and it's hugely interesting to see how that developed and how it continued to be important in the welsh government in the welsh community and the Welsh society and in everything about it and how influential that continued to be far past its time of, well, some could argue usefulness, and how it creates the problems that they have with others later on. But we'll talk about this more as we go, I'm sure. 
And we'll definitely get into the king's roles in all of this, because it will be a key component to the discussions and conflicts that exist in Welsh history going forward. But I hope you found this fascinating and interesting. If you need or want to comment or talk to me or have questions, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod. Or if you want to talk to me about other things, and hey, even throw Welsh stuff at me, my personal Gmail account is, or Gmail, my personal Twitter account is John DMP. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Please, if you have questions or comments, you can always ask them on there. If you want to share photos with us on there, that's great. People are always fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by it. I love to see the things you find because you guys can see things that I haven't seen. And you have ideas and perspectives that are different from me, which is great. And I love being helpful when I can be. And hopefully we can continue to hold this conversation for many, many, many episodes to come. Uh, If you have want to check out some of the other things we do, you can check them out at distractionsmedia.com. And we are, in fact, closing in on the end of one of the seasons for my um, improv roleplay podcast, which is called Fate of Heroes. And uh, if you want to check that out, uh, I think it's a lot of fun, and I think the stories have been great. So please check them out. And uh, until next time, everyone, we'll talk to you later. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.